Lord God, we are grateful that you reign. Um, I know in my lifetime, I've never felt more of the need to know that that's true. It feels like the world is just spinning off its axis in so many, so many ways all at once. And so, Lord, I'm grateful that you reign, that you are with us, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would move among us this morning, that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, to continue to worship. Lord, that we would open our hearts to a fresh anointing of your spirit, that you would speak to us today, Lord. And to that end, I pray that you would pour upon me the gift of preaching, that my very frail and broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word, uniquely crafted for each and every one of our hearts. We pray it with great confidence, for we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been talking in this series about community and what life looks like when we live as God calls us to live. Uh, What does it mean for our life, for it to be well with our soul in life? And today we're going to put a bow on studying Paul's advice in Romans chapter 12. We've been walking through that about how our communal lives should impact our daily lives and our daily actions. Even though we're focusing on verses 17 to 21 today, as you heard, I asked Alex to begin with the ninth verse so that we can see how Paul's advice builds throughout and we get a sense of the weight of hearing it all at once. There's a lot there that's expected of us and how we Uh, live our lives. In verses 1 and 2, which we didn't hear today of of chapter 12, Paul gives us the prerequisite of how to live such a life. He says this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul begins by stating clearly what is required to live as God calls us to live. We must, must offer God, rather than the world, our body and our mind. You might say that's all of us, right? All of ourselves. It's no small feat to daily surrender body and soul to God. In some of his commentaries on Romans, N.T. Wright writes this of Romans 12. He says, Christian living never begins with a set of rules. And that's what nine, the verses we heard today can feel like. Um, It's not just a set of rules. Though it contains them as it goes forward, it begins with the glad self-offering of one's whole self to the God whose mercy has come all the way to meet us in our rebellion, sin, and death. Right? It it comes with this desire to, to... respond as God has responded to us. I love how right directly ties our self-offering to God's self-offering. And as we read Romans 12, it's so easy to reduce his exhortations to a set of rules. If we do, and it is just a set of rules, it's so easy to say, well, that's impossible. I can't live that way and walk away. But that's not how we should respond. N.T. Wright, again, he says, At the center of genuine Christianity is a mind awake, alert, not content to take a few guidelines off the peg, but determined to understand why human life is meant to be lived in one way rather than another. 
why human life is meant to be lived in one way rather than another. This, to me, is where the rubber meets the road. How often do we really allow ourselves to seek the answer to this question of why should we live our life one way versus another? If you're like I am, the selfish part of you hesitates because of the implications It's saying, what would I have to sacrifice? What would I have to give up to live as God calls me to live? And this is a fair question, because sacrifice and great faith are required to live the life, the kingdom life that God calls us to live. In Romans 12, Paul is saying, in Christ we are one body with many diverse gifts. And as we live surrendered lives in community, our lives will begin to look different because they're based on kingdom values rather than on the world's. As Paul writes in verse 2, we no longer conform to the pattern of this world. To not conform to the pattern of the world is not simply a moral life that looks a particular way. It's a life where alternatively we conform to the pattern of the kingdom as we daily surrender both our body and our mind to God. This kingdom life radiates outward the mercy and grace that we have received as a result of Jesus Christ sacrificing his life for ours. And that life that God gives us by grace embodies all the traits that Paul listed today, that we heard Alex read. And if we are to be successful, it will take place in a loving and encouraging community. In other words, we're immersed in the world's ways all the time. I mean, that's the world we live in. That's the water we swim in. And so if we want to live a life that's different, if we don't want to become too overly comfortable and conform to the pattern of the world, and we all see the problem with the pattern of the world, right? We're seeing it all around us all the time. To live differently than that requires gathering in a different community than just the world's culture. And that's why community is so important. That's why we have to come together and encourage each other, remind each other, pray for each other. Um, And so the thought I'm asking you to ponder today as we're kind of coming to the end of this this uh, community-focused sermon series is this. Am I willing to do the spiritual training required to live this life Paul describes and to which I am called? Am I willing to do the spiritual training required to live the life Paul describes and to which I am called? It's so much easier to sit indoors all day and not do physical exercise. Do you agree? And for the first few years, if you don't exercise at all, you don't really notice the consequences on your body. But on down the line, speaking from personal experience, years later, we will experience the negative impact on our body and health that our lack of discipline produced, right? We know this about physical things. I think it's harder with the spiritual, but the same is true. When we don't make the sacrifices necessary to be disciplined in our spiritual growth and community, there will come a day when the full impact of what we've lost surfaces. How the pattern of this world has hindered our potential, impacted how we've treated those we love, and more, how our lack of spiritual fitness has influenced our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews, our cousins. In other words, the way we live our life, if we are not disciplined and we're we're basically just living and conforming to the pattern of this world, then those around us are influenced by that. 
It's not only our lives. It's the lives of those we love around us. And so the question of spiritual training is crucial. As we ponder this, let's look at the final set of verses for today from Romans 12, where Paul appeals to the church regarding evil in the world. The word evil appears three times in Romans 12. The first is in verse 9, which was the first verse that Alex read. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Sincere or maskless, which is what sincere means. Maskless love, love where you're authentic and you take off the mask, hates what is evil. The word Paul uses here in the Greek is panairos. And it means wrongful or malignant or malevolent. It's also the word used by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer that we said when he says, deliver us from the evil or the evil one, which he refers to as Satan. And so when we take in the definition of evil, it's easy to see how sincere love cannot abide it, right? If we're loving, we're not going to be embracing that. I was especially caught by that word malignant. We think of malignant cancer and how malicious and invasive it is. And that's the idea, I think, that Paul is trying to get at. And in today's verses, he takes the time to double down on this in verse 17 and spell out clearly what evil, that evil behavior has no place in the Christian life. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so how do we not repay evil for evil? Being sensitive to what others think is right. I want to say this again because it's so hard. Being sensitive to what others think is right is definitely out of fashion in today's politically divisive world. We've all experienced others who judge us harshly and treat us with contempt because we see the world differently than they do. Make sense? And truth be told, at times, we've probably done the same, right? In today's world, we've gotten this thing going where it used to be the first two-thirds of my life that if I disagreed politically with someone about what, the world, what makes the world right... We could still be friends. We could still hang out together. It was just one part of our lives. And what's happened is that one part of our lives has taken over all parts. And so now being sensitive to what others think is right, if someone is a Republican and is hearing a Democrat or a Democrat's hearing a Republican saying this is the right way to live, Paul is saying that we need to, to do, to, to think about what others think is right. And I think it's really hard for us today. This new reality in our country has created a never-ending cycle of disrespect and hatred and judgment that fits what Paul means when he says, don't repay evil with evil. We are repaying evil with evil in our behavior and the way we're treating each other. And as such, we're struggling with Paul's advice to be sensitive to what others think is right, to live at peace with those uh, who vote differently than we do. And to not take revenge when we're treated badly. And so what Paul is saying is for love to be sincere, we must hate that evil behavior. We must hate this cycle we found ourselves in. Not just, you know, kind of go, oh, I don't like that. 
it's a pretty visceral word, right? To hate it, to hate that cycle and not to abide it anymore. That I'm not going to contribute to it. Because such attitudes and behaviors are like a malignant cancer. Eating away at our spiritual health, not only individually, but as a society. In response, Paul says to us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do this? One way is having a more robust definition of our friendships. David Corey defines it this way. He says, friendship does not require that friends love all the same things, much less that they love the same ultimate things. Friendship is possible where what is loved is simply the person. Not the person's metaphysics or theology. I love that. Isn't this what Jesus taught and lived out? Think about it. That first and foremost, we are to love others. Our neighbor as ourselves, even our enemies, Jesus says. And I just want to tell you, I just experienced this firsthand. The breaking of this repay evil for evil pattern. I have a good friend that sees the world very differently than I do. And we were together a number of months ago, and we were talking, and in the middle of this, somehow, politics came up. I don't know how. And um, in that in that exchange, eventually we both got angry, we both raised our voices, and we both said words that hurt the other person. And while in that moment... Um, we eventually did, you know, stop that pattern and we did apologize to each other. It, it felt really rough coming off of that. And this good friend contacted me and said, hey, can we go to lunch? And so this week we, we went to lunch. And we had some good conversation. We were both being really delicate with each other, which is a good thing, right? That's what you want to do. But then in the middle of the lunch, he paused and he said, I the reason I asked you for lunch today is because I want to apologize to you. And I want to give you the opportunity to apologize to me. No, this is not bad. This is the way it should be. He was hurt, and I needed to know that, and he knew I was hurt. And so that's what we did. We apologized to each other for the ways that we had allowed uh, our political views or our views of the world to get in between our friendship. And then he said this, and this was my favorite part. He said, you know, I just want you to know that your friendship means a lot more to me than any differences we might have in how we see the world. And I wanted to say that to you today. To me, that interaction embodies what Paul is talking about. It embodies this, hey, I'm going to break the cycle. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. Even though you said words that hurt me, I'm not going to continue to hate you or to say words about you that make you hurt. Um, and so uh, as we think about this, right, what about you in your life? Are there relationships that maybe need a lunch, right, that something needs to be done? Could you be the one to be generous and gracious, How could Paul's advice make a lasting difference in your relationships? Because I really think this advice can make real differences. Consider that as I read the same same verses in the message version. This is how the, the, the don't repay evil for evil plays out there. It says, don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Such practical advice. 
How would the world change if we didn't hit back? If we discovered beauty in everyone? Because it's there. And we didn't insist on getting even. How would our world change if, as Paul proclaims, we leave the judging to God? We allow him to take care of it. How did God take care of it, by the way? I mean, I just love this. How did God take care of the judgment that the world deserves? N.T. Wright shares again in his commentary. He says, There are many other things to be said about God's moral governance of the world, but at the center of the Christian story stands this claim, that when human evil reached its height, God came and took its full weight upon himself. Right? And so when we think about God saying, I'll take care of it, I'll handle it, let me handle the judgment, this is how God did. He handled the judgment sacrificially by giving of himself for the sake of others, you and me. And this is the calling of the Christian life, is that we are willing to do the same. And so, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, God calls our sacrificial self-offering to be modeled after his And God took all that sin and evil upon himself for us. His love is strong enough to overcome evil with good. So God, when Paul is encouraging us to live this life, it's not that God is sitting up there on his high horse saying, hey, yeah, you guys down there, you need to do that. No, God himself came and did it, role modeled it for us. And so what about you and me? Will we allow Jesus' way of life to be our role model? Do we trust God's ways more than the world's? As N.T. Wright states, are we determined to understand why human life is meant to be lived one way, God's way, rather than another? Or to put it another way, are we determined to discover what an it is well with our soul life entails? It is at the end of the day The things, is it at the end of the day, the things the world promises? Things like doing whatever it takes to be successful, looking out for number one, belief in the promise that the endless pursuit of having more will make us happy and contented? Or is it confronting the pattern, is it conforming, sorry, to the pattern of God's kingdom? A life that admittedly requires sacrifice. A life where we prioritize being devoted to one another in love, honoring one another above ourselves, one in which we are devoted to keeping our spiritual fervor serving God, which leads to a life that is robust enough to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer, A life that overflows in generosity, that shares with those in need. A life that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. A life that is not proud or conceited, but is humble and in humility does not repay evil for evil, but honors what others see as the right way to live, seeking to live at peace with everyone not seeking revenge, but in faith, trusting that judgment to God. Choosing between these two ways of life, the world's way and God's way, this is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. This is the choice Paul is making clear in Romans 12. At the end of our lives, looking back 
I want you to think about this. At the end of our lives, looking back, which life would we rather have experienced? If it is the way of Jesus, then let's gladly take on the communal spiritual training required to be able to surrender both our mind and our body daily to God, that we might be empowered and filled by the Spirit and motivated by God and empowered by God to live this life that he calls us to live. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.